there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, a podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name is Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today, we're going to be giving our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, The Voyages of Marco Polo. But before we get into that, we did ask a question on social media this week. On our Facebook group, we asked a question, a poll question, which we do every week. How do you feel about large box versions of your favorite games? I gave some examples. Recent games that I got large box were Castle Burgundy Special Edition, Everell Complete Collection, and Acre Infinity Box. But you get the picture. These are games that originally came in a standard size box, but now there's a deluxe edition or a you know a, a, a complete collection that has all of the expansions in it, and now it's in a huge, massive box. How do you feel about that? So the the uh, options I gave in here, the responses we got, I love them. Got thirty eight percent. I'm mixed, got 55%. I dislike them, got 6%, and I will never buy one, got 1%. How'd you guys answer this? I did not answer this one. It's the first time I'm hearing the question, so I'm still gathering my thoughts a little bit. I'm so confused. A whirlwind over here. I think it depends on the box and how they've done it. Do they gather everything right? Is there an insert? Is everything organized nicely? Does it have all the expansions I want? Does it leave out the stuff I don't want? Or is a big box by definition, all encompassing everything that's ever been made for the game. So the only examples I can think of are like Snowdonia, which I've never even opened that one. There's just too much stuff in there. I got overwhelmed. Anachrony Infinity Edition or whatever that one's called, the giant one that I had. I got overwhelmed. I sold that one to Tim. Tricurion Legends of Deluxe Master Set. I got overwhelmed. I sold that one. So I don't think I like them. I think I get overwhelmed by them. I have Hansa Teutonica big box sitting in its shrink wrap over here. <laughs> So the track record history is any indication. I am not a fan of them, apparently. Theoretically, it seems like a great idea if it has everything I want. I think Eclipse Second Dawn maybe is one of like a successful example of that. That's an iteration on the first edition. And from what I understand, it has some of the expansion stuff, but not all of it because there's some more stuff coming out. So a bit of a mixed bag for me. But I think in general, you know, it could be overwhelming unless it's unless I know exactly what it is that I'm looking for. Then I think I'm all for it. Hey, what is Ta- Hansa Teutonica big box edition? Is that just like trading in a big box of cardboard for a bigger box of cardboard? Pretty much. I think there's like three different maps that are in there. Maybe some expansion stuff. I don't know. I don't know. I've never opened it. It's just sitting here on my shelf getting dusty. <laughs> Chris, just remember that a game does not require plastic to be a good game. Even a big, it's good true. game. It's true. Chris, or Adam, I, I, you know, the funny thing is like, clearly your answer was I dislike them, but it was clearly not I will never buy one because you bought plenty of them. So you were never scared away from picking one up in the first place. They seem cool, right? <laughs> oh, look at this big box of stuff. Oh, I don't want it. Yeah, I said I'm mixed on this because I the reason this came up for me is I got the Castle Burgundy Special Edition in this week, which turned what was a normal like small size box on my game shelf into another massive box. It doesn't fit on my game shelf. So I had had some of my bigger boxes kind of set aside up on my bar in my game room. And that bar space is running out. Like I, I don't even have a place to put these things anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's mixed. Like I like a game that has lots of content in it and a lot of what takes up the space in these things are the organizers. And so like, if they're, if they're built with a nice organizer, that's great, right? It makes it easier to play. You only pull out the modules you need, but it's just so much to get out. And I went, uh, with some friends, we went for a gaming weekend this weekend, rented a house a couple hours away. And I wanted to teach them Everdell. It was perfect for the player count and for the weighted game they like. But there's no way I was going to bring that big box up there. So it's like they're nice because they have everything. It's in one box. They're beautiful boxes. They got nice storage, but they're completely not portable at all. So I'm definitely kind of 
I'm getting down on big boxes at this point. I think like they're nice, but I think too many of them is crazy. And they're just, you just don't get as much play out of the games when you got a big box. I said I was all in on them. I love them. And I've never once not played a game because the box was too big. So <laughs> I, I'm not sure where that's coming from. And I, I, I say this with the caveat that a game has to have some justification for a big box. So some games, clearly, there's never any reason to have a big box, like Hansa Teutonica, for example. What? But there's plenty, <laughs> there's plenty of them that, that do. And there's especially the ones that have a lot of expansion content. And in those situations, I think that's great. I mean, for example, a couple of them that I've got is I've got the Wingspan nesting box, which is great because you can fit all the stuff in there for all the different variations, all the different expansions. Same thing with Terraforming Mars. That's great. I mean, talk about a game that needed an update or an upgrade more than anything else. You know, any other game out there, it's got to be Terraforming Mars. And the big box edition absolutely does that. Another example, well, I mean, Scythe. I don't have Scythe, but if I did have Scythe, I would absolutely want to have the updates, the upgrades, and the expansions with the big box. So there's lots of examples out there of games where I would want to have the big box because it lets you capture all the different pieces and put it all in one place. One example of a game that I think needs a big box and doesn't have a big box is Tapestry. One of my favorite games of all time, and I've got all these like just pieces of stuff like you know rumbling around inside this box and no kind of organization or anything and i wish we had one so overall absolutely think they're a fun investment usually it means there's some cool stuff inside the box that wouldn't fit in otherwise and i think that's great but chris tapestry is already a large box and there's an official insert for it and everything fits in the box nice and clean if you get that insert so just get the insert and you'll be totally happy with tapestry yeah, you know, you, you mentioned that before, and I haven't, I haven't looked. I should get that. That probably would be a smart thing for me to invest. Yeah, it helps a little bit. It helps. I, but I was going to say, yeah, like Terraforming Mars big box and even the Dune Imperium big box, those are big boxes done right because they still fit on a normal size shelf. It's just when the boxes get so huge that, you know, like you just can't put them anywhere and they're just taking up massive amounts of space. That's what really bugs me. I was thinking of the Castles of Burgundy special edition, which is not too large. Like it's not as big as some of these other ones I mentioned. But I think they could have fit that in a normal size box. It was just taller, you know, like a normal 12 by 12 box. It was a little thicker. And even I got Expeditions this week, which is the new, you know, size sequel. And that box is probably too awkwardly shaped from what it could have been. I think if they just make that box a little bit thicker and stack some things in there, I think you could have made that fit into what would be a more standard size box. That box is like, it's weird. It's like larger than the original scythe box, like length and, and height wise, but it's not, but it's not very thick. So that's kind of a weird choice for that box. So I think trying to stick to normal size boxes that are just thicker would be better in most cases. I haven't thought about that with expeditions, Tim, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I've still got it sitting on my table. I got it and I unpacked it and left it on my game table, but I haven't put it on a shelf yet. So I haven't actually seen how it fits, but, but I think you're absolutely right. It's a weird shape. It's kind of, it's the same shape as the special Kickstarter version of what's that one that you always say that uh, you wish you hadn't given me outlive. It's a big, flat, long box. That's right. It's very strange. It is very strange. In fact, like I've got a, I've got a shelf set aside for just the weird tall boxes, like beyond Mm. the sun and Ark Nova that are just long and it doesn't even fit in that space with those other boxes. Like there's a shelf above it and it just doesn't fit there. It's taller than all those those weird shaped boxes. 
cool insert in it though. So I guess that's, you know, that was the trade-off that they went for. Here's how some of our listeners answered on the poll results. Ray Meyer said, I want this stuff, but I shouldn't have to rent a U-Haul to get it to game night. <laughs> yeah, totally. Steven Dixon said, I'm mixed. I'm incredibly proud of my Windward Collector's Edition big box, but man, it takes up a lot of my limited shelf space. This has me hesitant to get the side big box as much as I want to get everything size. Well, I can tell you, Steven, that side is a much better investment than Windward. So at least th- there's that going. Russell Kenimore said, I love the idea of them. However, I found that we no longer get Everdell to the table much because the box is intimidating. So I don't really feel that way when it's at home. Like Everdell is actually easier to get out to the table now with because the insert's pretty nice. So it's a big box, but that's not a big deal. The problem is that I do travel a decent amount with games. Like when we go on vacation, I bring games with, and now there are games that will never travel with us, Everdell being a particular example, but even Castles of Burgundy, like I'm not going to throw that big box in my car or throw it in some luggage and carry it across the country anymore in a way that I used to. So yeah, it makes it just a little bit less easy to get out. Chris, you're you're doing a game weekend with some friends out at the coast. Are you going to bring like one of these huge boxes or would you not even hesitate to throw something that big in the car when you could fit several other games instead? Is your car that small that you can't fit games in? I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I understand it if you're flying, it's definitely a different thing, but I mean, I'm driving, I'll fit in all the games I want to, but yeah, I, the box would have no impact on my, my traveling if I'm going by car, but even a normal size box, a normal size game box I wouldn't fly with. So, you know, that there's a good example right there. You know, I I, take, I might take a very small box game if I was flying, but I wouldn't take even a standard size box, I think, if I was flying. All right, fair enough. Let's jump into a description of the Voyages of Marco Polo. In the Voyages of Marco Polo, players begin the game by assuming the role of what the rulebook calls an associate of Marco Polo. Each of the associates possesses a unique, very powerful skill, which when used correctly, will greatly benefit the player throughout the course of the game. On the game board, where the bulk of the action takes place, you'll notice a sprawling map, among other things, ranging from Alexandria in the west to Beijing in the east, where, in total, 15 cities are displayed, each of which provide a bonus or new dice placement spot, which become available should a player travel to that location and place a trading house there. Traveling, however, doesn't come cheap, and we'll discuss that soon. The rest of the game board is filled with spots where players will put up to three of their initial hand of five dice. Spots which allow players to gain resources, contracts, or travel. Once all dice are spent by everyone, a new round begins. Points are earned by trading in resources for contracts and through various cities where players may be able to trade resources for points. At the end of five rounds, the player with the most points wins. Marco Polo was designed by Simone Luciani and Daniele Tashini with art by Dennis Lohausen and was originally released in 2015. All right, Adam, thanks for that description. So we're going to talk about the gameplay and mechanisms of the Voyages of Marco Polo just to get a sense of how much we're experienced with this game. I have played it, a physical version of this game. I've also played probably 20 games of it on Board Game Arena. This was Adam and Chris's first games tonight, but we played two games in a row. So they even have a little experience getting to a couple of games. Maybe not our hottest takes tonight. We've got some... Get some knowledge going into it. Two games, steamy hot knowledge <laughs> going into this one. Steamy hot pile of knowledge. Yeah, steamy pile of knowledge, right. First and foremost, you got dice placement, dice worker placement. Not usually one of my favorite mechanisms because it's dice. What does it mean? It's just a number. It's arbitrary. It's so like it doesn't mean anything. 
But here, you know, I don't know. I kind of enjoyed it after the second play, which went a lot smoother <laughs> for me. <laughs> so, right, this game, what stands out to me is you're not going to be able to play this game decently without knowing how this game plays. And you're not going to know it on a first play of this game, how it's all going to pan out and work out because it's tough. There's some decisions you have to make early on. So you have to draft these super mega powerful characters, but powerful if you know how to use them correctly as part of your, one of the first decisions you have to make in the game. In the first game, I was like, Oh, I'm going to get this guy who is going to travel all around the map and everywhere I travel, I get to drop one of my training posts and I'm going to, score billions of points and have all this stuff going on. And I was unable to travel hardly anywhere just because, you know, I was, I didn't know how to get things going. So that early decision stood out to me as being a very crucial, it's kind of a like Gaia project. You're looking at the factions, you're looking at what's going to give you more points as you go on. How are you going to be able to start things out and get a solid, you know, solid engine going so that this powerful leader, powerful character, merchant, whatever it is that you have, can generate some coinage or points or whatever you need to get going. So that's one thing I want to point out first. I first want to start by setting the scene here because I think that may explain some of the commentary, especially Adams. Uh, In the first game where we started this up and he was rolling along and kind of grumbling about it, and I think you ended up coming in in pretty pretty far in in, uh, the the rear there. Deep in the basement. In the second game, I, I don't know what happened. It was like he caught on fire and he ended up doubling anybody else's score in the game. He just absolutely took off. So um, I'm actually glad that the game, the second game went better for you because the first one, it seemed like you weren't enjoying it as much. You were definitely enjoying it some, but it seemed like you weren't enjoying it much. So, you know, success can always feel pretty good when you're playing a new game. And and so I'm glad that, that you got that experience. I think the dice drafting is cool, but I think the thing that really caught my attention was the insane asymmetry of the leaders. And you alluded to this, Adam, but and Tim, you had said this before when you were talking about the game to us about how they break the game. And it was crazy the degree to which these leaders broke the game. You have one leader where when you roll the dice, you don't roll the dice at all. You actually you get to set the dice to whatever you want to set them to. One of the big things you're trying to do is get to Beijing. One of the characters starts in Beijing. It's an automatic 10 points and easy access to all kinds of other things. Uh, I had a character that basically got to teleport around the board. I didn't make any good use of it, but I had the ability to do it. Uh, Stuff like that. It just it made the game. I don't know. There was something exciting about having these completely game changing abilities. It's so unusual in an asymmetric game that I just thought that was such a neat concept in this one yeah and it was fun for me to play back to back here tonight and you know we got done with the first game and everyone's like oh well clearly the strategy was to do this other thing and then we go into the next game and with different player powers then some of the players like try to do that thing and they completely failed at it other players and then we realized like wait adam has this ability and we've just been letting him abuse it the whole time we've we've been actually helping him this whole time with this ability and so we should have been doing something else. And I had the player power where you could just set your dice to anything. So after a few turns in, I would throw the six down on that contract. And then everyone else would have to play a six or higher. And they're like, there's Tim, what are you doing? Like, you're such a jerk. But you guys knew I had the power. You could have gone there a couple turns earlier and done it. And so you really have to not only play your power to the best ability, but you have to play around the other players' powers. And I think this, what, what 
you know, this game, I think, is a game that is not super complicated. It's kind of straightforward. But I think there's a lot of like game to learn from experience with this. I think I think more plays is going to make this into one of those tight like chess games where you're like, okay, we're going. It's like Gaia, it feels a little like Gaia Project, a much simpler version of Gaia Project to me. And Adam mentioned it about the setup. But beyond that, it's just I think that this is a game where every time you're going to be looking at the player power and the the way the map's set up and kind of be like, okay, I got to really map this thing out. I got to figure out what the right strategy is. And sometimes people are going to get in my way, you got to work around it. But it feels like one of those games that's just, you're going to get better at it the more you play it. And, you know, I don't always feel that way with, with Euro games. Obviously, experience always helps. But this one feels like one where experience will let you get done what you want to get done if you know how to how to take advantage of the elements. I think you're touching on the perfect thing about this game, Tim. Even after two plays, you can see that to be to play these different characters well, it's going to take some iterations and playing over and over. You're going to see these different edge cases. Some combinations are going to work well. And by the end of the game, I was getting, I don't know, I had 24, 25 bucks in one turn by turning, you know, trading in this thing that, and you pointed out a case where you could, oh, so I could just turn in, what was it, camels and pepper to get 42 bucks with a six tie. So you're going to find these different little nuances, all these different buildings unlock things. Anyway, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about this. Game. Repeated plays are going to generate emergent gameplay and a bigger knowledge, bigger understanding. You have to play against the other players too, Tim. That's something you pointed out, I don't know, halfway through the second game. It's going to be a lot of interaction be amongst the players to kind of prevent and not... You guys were just boosting me up, like you said. So on a subsequent play, whoever's that guy, we're going to have to be a little more leery of going to the, I think it was the market spaces to boost up that character. So there's going to be all these interactions that result from these wild asymmetric powers. And I guess that's really kind of the story of these asymmetric games, right? That you have to learn them. You have to understand the character powers the same way that you do in Gaia Project, which I hadn't thought about, but I think is a very apt comparison where you really are playing a slightly different game with each of the different factions. In this one, you are playing a slightly different game. Now, maybe that's overstating it because you're playing the same game, but you're taking very different approaches to it. It's different than Root where you're playing, truly playing an entirely different game. But I think some of the same concepts apply that until you really understand what other people are doing and how to affect what they're doing, it's really going to be tough to, to make this game, you know, put a good game together and be competitive. Yeah. Now, as far as mechanisms go, one of my favorite things about this is the variety in the, the cities that you're going to visit over the course of the game. Because at the start of the game, you set up a bunch of small cities, which are just like when you go there and put a trading post, you get a bonus and then it gives you a bonus every income. And then there's the other cities that create new dice worker placement phases or spaces. And it was fun to see this again, just doing it back to back. And we saw almost none of the same spaces between the two games. Like they were so different that the second game were like, whoa, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. And so then it's fun to put that puzzle together. Which direction do I want to go? How does it match up with my end game location goals? And can I take advantage of this as I'm moving around the board? With my only complaint being, and it may be that they're valuable, but they're boring, is that a lot of those worker, the dice spaces that are in those cities are like convert resources to points. And the, and those are just not fun. And you, you generally are only going to take advantage of them late in the game. 
but beyond that, it's it's cool to see that variety come up every game. The one cool thing about the cities was that you could multiply their effect by the pips on the dice. I thought that was kind of neat. So it wasn't straight, like put a dice yeah. here and get six points. It was yeah. like, you know, put a, a five here. And for every pip on the dice, you could, if you had it, trade a camel and a silk to get four bucks and two points. So you'd have to kind of manage your resources in a clever way before you went to that. Hopefully nobody else went there to make it cost more and you had to time it out just right. So there was a lot of nuance rather than, you know, than just put a dice here, get the points. It, it was interesting a lot more so than a lot of these games where it's like, oh, here's some points, seven points, got it, done. Yeah, it's not like just, hey, there's a new worker placement space, but it's both you have to have moved, gotten there, placed the trading house and... It's going to vary depending on which dice you have available. Speaking of the dice, Chris, I want to ask yeah. you because, you know, like this has a similar dice placement mechanism to Lorenzo El Magnifico, which is that, you know, if you're the first person to go to a space, you might get a better benefit with the higher pips. But also if you're the second person to go there, you're going to have a, a penalty to it. And this was the same. How did you feel about this, the dice worker placement, um, you know, kind of the, the, the way that that all works in this game? I do like dice worker placement. But I didn't like the the amount of penalty that you suffered in this game by being the follow-on user of the spot. So I don't remember exactly how it worked in Lorenzo, honestly. But in this game, not only are you paying a penalty, but you're paying the penalty commensurate with the dice that you place there. So if you place a five on a space, which may be necessary to get the benefit that you want, you're going to have to pay $5 in order to use that space after somebody's already used it. Now, in my second game, I actually used the character that didn't have to pay any penalty. And I thought that was great. I mean, it op- it made the game so much more enjoyable to me because I hated that penalty in the first game that we played. Yeah, what's interesting about it is that, you know, with Lorenzo, you always just paid, I think, three coins more if you went to a space that somebody else had already been in or a column or whatever. A column, mm-hmm. um, but, but also, like, but the income, it depended on the place, right? The, the incomes were worse there. But here, that was the thing, right? Like, if you had something you want to do that was high high cost, try to go there as soon as possible because you're not going to have to pay as big of a penalty to get the benefit. But then there was a trade-off. Sometimes you could go to a place and pay almost no, ben- you know, no penalty if you just could use a lower dice there. But sometimes that wasn't what you needed. So I th- I think it's great. That's why I wanted to ask you about it if you felt any better about it. it. Sounds like you didn't, but I think it's really fun. I love that. I love when worker placement is, is it's so important about which space you go to first. Your first choice matters a lot. Yeah, you're talking about the penalty here for going to spaces. It's, it's interesting how different games handle the, the penalty. Is it, are you just totally blocked off like in Anachrony? You can't go to that spot anymore. It's It's gone. Or are there, you know, other spaces that just aren't quite as powerful. If you're the second one, you just get a little bit less stuff or do you have to pay a penalty? You knew it was going to be more costly if somebody else was in the space. Also, you couldn't return to the space if you were using the same color die. So there's this black dice mechanic in the game. And these are like the mega most powerful dice in the game. or They're, they're pretty freaking amazing as far as being able to use them almost like a wild card, you can put them anywhere. So I thought that mechanic was very good too. It was almost kind of, you know, if you had three camels to purchase one of these things, you're going to do it every time if they were available. So what do you guys think about this wild card dies or these, these black dice? I 
thought it was interesting. I didn't really do it the first game, and I actually did much better than the second game where I did do it. You guys did it and did great. So it's I found it to be um I think it's one of those advanced strategy or at least it felt to me like one of those advanced strategy things that I didn't quite get my hands around. But it was another one of those things that tightened the economy in the game, which is actually well, actually, Tim sounds like he wants to say something about that. And I was going to go off in a different direction. So, Tim, what, what were you going to say about that? No, I was just going to say I don't have any clue what the strategy is because I played this game like 20 times and I've never won <laughs> it once, including tonight where this was my you guys all played it for the first time. and I took third place in the first game that uh, you'd never played before. So I clearly have no idea what's <laughs> going on in this strategy. But I do think just like a lot of the things in this, I think the black dice and, and spending those camels for it is going to be very dependent on your player power and how valuable it is for you and just the board state like do i really need to move early this game well i better skip that black dice because i need my camels to go do something else it's a fun little extra choice here in a game that is generally pretty straightforward it's nice that there's a couple little places that you can kind of say hey i've got an extra choice to make this turn yeah the thing i wanted to talk about a little bit was movement in this game and i i want to harken back to some comments tim that you had made when we talked about this last week and one of the things that you mentioned was the tightness of the economy and i want to complain about that a little bit because it did feel <laughs> too tight to me and one of the places where it really just slammed on you one and actually one of them is the the dice placement that we were just talking about and the penalty you have to pay if you're going to use a space that's already been used but the other is movement and that felt to me absolutely brutal it was so hard to move in this game to say a little bit more about the mechanic there not only do you have to pay for the space you have to pay two dice out of only five dice so you have five dice you have to spend two of your five dice to even take a move action at all. If somebody's already used the move action, then you have to pay coins in order to take the move. Plus you have to pay coins in order to take, you know, however many moves you want to make. Like I think one move was like three and then it got pretty pricey pretty fast. So it was really, really hard to move. And then maybe you even had to pay more coins to take the route you wanted to take. If you wanted to take an overwater route, they were really expensive. I think one of them was like 15 coins. Some of them required you to pay three or four camels. All of this stuff is hard to get. And to me, it felt prohibitive. Now, the first game we played, I hardly moved at all. And I came in second. I mean, I had a respectable score, I think. And I basically just spent the time filling contracts. But the thing that it made me think of was Barrage, where when we had talked about Barrage, one of the comments that we made was that you didn't necessarily have to go out and do a whole bunch of stuff on the board, but it feels like what you're supposed to be doing. So it's less fun of a game if you're not putting things out on the board in Barrage. The same way here, it felt like it would be less fun of a game not moving around the board, even if you were able to successfully score points without doing a lot of movement. So I was always feeling like I really want to be moving. I really want to be moving. And I felt it very hard, very, very hard to do that. It felt a little a little unbalanced in the difficulty of actually moving. Yeah, I totally get that feeling. In some games, I feel like that 100%. But I think that's one of the emergent strategies or one of the things you learn here is that moving isn't the key. And sometimes you can say, hey, let me fill a couple of contracts. Wow, there's a bunch of money. Now I can make a big move action. Or, hey, let me get to this one small building early because it's going to get me some regular income that will help me 
do other stuff later and some mix of it. And I think, again, depending on the board layout, the player power you've got, every game is going to kind of give you different capabilities of what you could focus on, what you should focus on. And some mix together. I even like how sometimes you fill a contract and it gives you a free movement or you fill a contract and it gives you another contract or it gives you a bunch of gold. So sometimes even what you planned at the beginning of the game is going to vary depending on what contracts come up and that you pick those up and they give you some extra bonus. And all of a sudden, whoa, I've got an extra move this turn that I wasn't even expecting. So Chris, I totally get that. It does feel tight. It feels hard. In some games, you're not going to do a lot of moving. But I think it's pretty interesting that the game is going to give you different choices every time and it's not always the same choice. Like I don't think that filling contracts heavily every game is the right way to go. I think sometimes moving around quickly is going to be the right way to go and you're going to find a way to do it. And I love that about it. Yeah, not much to add on there except, you know, first game to second game, I had the guy in the first game that was supposed to move around the map and drop drop a trading house every time he went through a city. You didn't have to stop there. You could truck on through if you could move six or something you could drop you know three trading houses all these cities that you went through so i spent round five i was like all right i'm gonna just try to move (laughs) as much as i can so i spent the whole fourth round and half of the third round trying to get enough money and camels and whatever i just wanted to move to see if i could do it and it you know i have zero experience at this game but finally i was able to throw my two dice down there and truck around. I think I had three cities in one. So I was able to put three trading houses out of, was for a total of like four out of 11. So it was pretty embarrassing and it was difficult. Second game, I did very little move. I looked for those contracts, Tim, that you were talking about. They gave you some free movement with those. So I think I got two or three or I don't know, however many movement just from contracts alone. And I don't think I spent any money on moving, maybe one turn or something I spent a couple dice to move around the board and it felt great to not have to worry about that space at all. Yeah, that's what I mean. I th- That's why I think this game, it's getting better for me every time I play it because it is a fairly simple game. And I, the first game I played it, I was like, oh, that was pretty interesting. And then I played it a couple more times. And I was like, oh, okay, this game's getting a little redundant, a little dull. There's not a lot going on. But then the more I played, I'm like, holy cow, I never even thought about that. And I still haven't won a game. Clearly, I got a lot to discover with it. I think this is a, a timeless game that will not stand the test of time because of the production and the theme and the games have moved on. But I think this is a game that could have come out Catan era and it could have been a Catan. It could have been a game that people just go back to and play over and over and over again for decades if there wasn't so much competition in the marketplace for it. I think it is that strong of a game. I bet, again, I think it's a Gaia Project level of game. Not that I would rate it as high as Gaia Project for me, but I think from a from a strategic design perspective, I think it's got a lot to explore in a fairly straightforward game. Let's jump into the theme and production, which I touched on just briefly there. The the only thing I want to mention to start with before you guys start railing on the production is that the the (laughs) theme is a little more interesting to me because I did a little uh, investigation into who Marco Polo was in in his life. It's just something I didn't know much about before. He was an explorer and trader and writer back at the end of the 13th century. And he was one of the first Westerners who kind of discovered the East, kind of traveled into, you know, Mongolia and China and, and started to learn about this culture that was so distinctly different than Western culture at the time. Cultures were so, were developed so different and not that far apart continentally, right? They were even connected. One of them used a fork and one of them used chopsticks. I mean, think about the fact that they were so separate 
that they hadn't even learned to eat with the same tools. And that wasn't discovered until about this. Like it wasn't really shared until about this time. Right. And that's, that's one small piece. But the point is that Marco Polo, he went there and he spent decades traveling around Asia and he wrote about it and people learned about culture and about the different spices and flavors and materials and things like that. And that's pretty fascinating. So I think they did a good job of bringing that theme into this silly little order fulfillment, um, you know, route building game. Uh, I think it's cool. Good, good choice of a theme for this. Type yeah. Of shockingly, I think the theme's pretty neat here. This part of the world. So the, the top left part of the map starts in Venezia, Venice, Italy, which I don't know, is that where Marco Polo is from? Yes. And then it moves on the bottom right corner of the map is Sumatra. A whole, you know, you think about it, that's two completely different cultures. Marco Polo's first guy, well, I don't know, not the first guy, but at least one of the most famous guys to document this whole area. I spent a lot of time flying around the Middle East and over Afghanistan to see some of these spots represented. Karachi, I talked to those guys on the radio all the time and you've got the Himalayas right in the middle of it. I was telling these guys, I used to see K2 from the airplane. And so just some neat memories looking at this part of the world and some, some stories to tell. So a bit of nostalgia here for me uh, with this map in this region of the world. So I thought that was kind of fun production wise. I don't know. I'll let Chris talk about production. If he has any <laughs> comments on that, it's, it's nothing special. It's, it's bland dice and some icons everywhere. And I don't know. That's, that's all I've said about that. A- Adam's got nothing to say. He's going to leave his dirty work for me. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you do that. The bad yeah. stuff. I mean, okay. So first production, it's a lot of cardboard, some boring dice and some, you know, it's a map. It's got some, there's like a fork on there or a knife. And it's not, you know, nothing very exciting to look at, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not super unpleasant. The thing you said about the story behind the game, Tim, the the story of Marco Polo, I think that is interesting. And I think that knowing that makes the game a little bit more interesting. But honestly, to me, almost none of that came through in the actual game itself. You're trading pepper gold and just like gold and silk just like marco polo did yeah yep. I, well i mean i I'm, i assume he did more than pepper <laughs> gold and silk i mean he did other things and he wasn't just was he just fulfilling orders you know going around the continent i don't know i just in other words it there's it didn't stand out to me as telling much of a story much of the story that you described but we wouldn't have learned anything about the story i wouldn't have had we not played this game and had tim now, took the effort to research a little bit about Pearl Marco Polo and tell me about it. Yeah, no, and that's fair. And I and I definitely I'll give the game a couple bonus points for being based on a you know a a character in history worth knowing a little bit more about. Like I said, I just wish that it came through more in the game. It felt pretty standard issue order fulfillment, traveling around a map in whatever period that was. So that to me did not stand out as, as a, a big selling point. Yeah. I, and I get that, Chris. And here's what I was thinking about it as I was, I was reading about the theme and I was like, okay, I'm more interested now that I know a little bit about this character and what he was actually doing at the time. And then the sequel being like in the service of the con, which is that Marco Polo official, like he took a role as an emissary to uh, Kublai Khan after he kind of traveled around. And so the sequel is about him being in that role and it's, and it changes. So anyway, Knowing the history, it helps. But I also think, Chris, that theme-wise, like historical themes 
just haven't connected. If this was a game about something sci-fi, if this was a space game, you would have enjoyed it more, right? Even though, even if the theme didn't really carry through, but if it was like space traders traveling through space and dropping off ore and plutonium, you probably would have enjoyed it more, right? You know, yes, that is probably true. And I think there may be some truth to your comment generally, but I wouldn't say that historical themes have not connected with me. I mean, we've got Sulkin, Teotihuacan, Darwin's Journey. Those are all games that, you know, conceptually, you know, it's the same sort of thing. This one, and, and it, maybe it just didn't connect with me. I mean, th- this one didn't feel unique enough to me at theme-wise. European themes. Well, and this wasn't even European <laughs> no, themes, kidding. you know? I guess it was, it was really <laughs> mostly about, you know, Asia. So maybe if you read the story of Lorenzo... Uh, I was, was going to argue against myself and say I'm learning about Lorenzo. That would not have helped me enjoy that game anymore. Here, here's, actually, here, um, I just put my finger on what it was. It didn't look like a game that took place in Asia. It looked like a game that took place on a map of Europe that you find in any board game. If it looked Asian, <laughs> if it looked like it had some art representative of Asia, or okay, maybe I would have felt different about it. Because I think that's the kind of thing that attracts me in a game like Teotihuacan or Sulkin or, you know, you name, name your historical game that I haven't panned the, <laughs> the production on. Or Golem. I was thinking of Golem, right? Because that's, yeah. that's a European story, but it does have a fantastical element to it. So I was wondering if that's yeah. if it was a fantastical element that led you to it. Or was it the, the look of Prague and kind of the unique feel of it and maybe just not the beige board? I think there is some truth to that. What was the other one? Yokohama. Chris, you enjoyed Yokohama, that one, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about that. What was yep. uh, what worked for Yokohama theme wise for you versus this one? You know, maybe it. Oh, you stumped them. No, I'm. That's a really <laughs> good question. I mean, I think that's a really fair question. And so much of this, I mean, comes down to a very personal question of taste. And in Yokohama, the art didn't look cookie cutter to me. Yeah. In Sulkin and. Teotihuacan, in so many of the games that I enjoy, the art in the production doesn't look cookie cutter. This, to me, looked very cookie cutter the same way that uh, Lorenzo Il Magnifico looked very cookie cutter. So it it looked like so many other board games out there. And I absolutely 100% agree. This looks like every other not every other. It looks like so many of those Euro games that come out and it has this uh, sepia tones to it. And what's the game... Tim Tyletum is that the other one? It, it looks exactly the same. Yeah. It's a different part of the world, yeah. and it's trying to represent different. It has that same genericy feel to it, and I totally get what you're saying, Chris. Yeah, generic is a good word. I think that de- generic describes what I'm trying to get across. Okay, not unpleasant, not bad, just run of the mill. Right, the points with the wreaths around them, you know, for victory points. Yeah, it's like 100 yeah. percent generic points with the wreaths <laughs> yeah. around them. Got it. There is pepper here, so you can't say that there's no spice in this oh. game. Ah. In fact, you're traveling the spice road. Oh boy! All right, well, let's move into let's move into our final thoughts and ask the question: Would you request to play this game again? Yes, I would request to play this game again, wow. despite its genericiosity. I went into it. I was like, oh, looking at the board and looking at the icons and looking at this and that. I mean, dice placement. I don't even like that. I think there's enough there that with the different interactions and how are you going to counter the other players and all these different strategies are going to emerge. You're going to learn and discover more and more and more and be able to exploit different little nuances. And 
you're going to find new things to do the more you play this game. So I think there's a lot here to discover and I'm looking forward to playing this one again. Before Chris jumps in here, I just got to say how shocked I am by this because Adam, we got the first round of the game and Adam says, Tim, tell me where I can find fun in this game. And whenever Adam asks me this question, he never finds fun. It doesn't matter how much I explain it. And for, in fact, for the next half hour, he mocked every time I said, Adam, this is really cool. You should, and he's like, oh yeah, that's the sarcasm was just dripping out of Tim. Yeah, that's really cool. The way you try to sell it, Tim, like, check it out. You could trade a camel and a silk for four points. <laughs> that doesn't sound exciting. <laughs> but when you spent three rounds trying to move your dude over here and collecting this stuff and um, your main character, your main boss guy can like do all this other stuff. And now look, now I'm just pumping out the points because I have figured all this stuff out and put the puzzle. So yeah. Tim, don't be a salesman for this game, all right? <laughs> no, okay, fair. But no, but it was funny to watch his evolution because it really he was he was miserable the first couple rounds. And again, I've seen Adam go through this before, never get out of it. But by the end of the first game, I started to hear a little bit, a little spark of like interest. And uh, and we talked about playing a second time, and, and he was the one that was helping convince Chris that he wanted to play again. And so, got into the second game. Adam had a uh, you know like a fantastic game going, but clearly kind of figured out a strategy to go down. And so that was. It was fun to see their eyes open. That's cool. Yeah. I enjoyed the first game a lot. I thought it was really fun. I enjoyed it more than Lorenzo El Magnifico. I thought that the dice placement was interesting. I thought that it was a little bit smoother than Lorenzo in particular because a lot of the points you could score through these contracts and it wasn't it wasn't like you had to do these epic things to handle a contract. You could kind of start rolling and start taking these moves in kind of like a a very cyclical way that got you the contracts you needed. And some of them let you do some pretty interesting things. And I had a lot of fun, did pretty well. I had a pretty reasonably good game, even though I didn't take advantage of my player's power really at all. That was my teleporting guy, which <laughs> didn't, I didn't really tell him. I think I teleported once, but by the end of the second game, I found myself starting to get irritated at the game. And that was largely because of the tightness of the economy. Now, where I'm going to kind of check myself on this is that I did have fun the first game. And I am put in mind of Gaia Project, where I also felt like there was a lot of frustration based on not understanding the interplay of the different factions and how to really capitalize on what the factions could do and so I definitely could see this as being a game where once I got used to it, once I learned it, I might enjoy it more. I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, with Gaia Project, I hated that game at first, or at least I was pretty, really kind of medium to lukewarm about it. And now it's one of my favorite games. I think it's great. But it took a lot of effort and it took a lot of time. And largely, I put that time and effort in because you guys are into it. And so I learned, I kind of learned to like it because you guys liked it. This one, based on the theme and the various things we talked about, where, you know, I, I I wasn't drawn in by the mechanics the way I think, Tim, that you were. And the the production and the theme didn't draw me in. So I wouldn't ask for it on my own, but I would be more than happy to play it if you guys wanted to. And, you know, maybe once I've got more of the more of an understanding of the strategy here, Maybe I'd feel differently about it. Maybe this one will grow more on me. But I did have fun the first time. I Mostly the second game, it was frustration that was pushing me away from it. 
But, you know, frustration, you learn the game and the frustration maybe starts to go away a little bit. Yeah, well, I think, Chris, since you're open to playing it some more, even if you're not excited about it, we should try some async games on BGA and see if, you know, if, we, if it all becomes a regular for us. Because Steve seemed to really enjoy it as well. Mm-hmm. For me, this game had a little bit of an arc, right? Because I played it quite a few times. And my first game of it, I was like, wow, yeah, cool mechanisms. This is exactly up my alley type of game for, from a mechanism perspective. And then I played a few games on BGA and I was starting to feel like, ah, you know, it's, it's very rote. It's kind of standard, you know, nothing too exciting here. And then it's it's cycled back around. People keep inviting me to games on Board Game Arena. And I've played enough games now where I'm starting to realize that there are so many different things to learn and explore about this game. Even tonight, again, playing two games back to back, sitting around a table with four people discussing what was happening. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. I never thought about that. I think the game has a lot to explore as straightforward as the mechanisms are. So I will request to play it again. I, I think that now that you guys have been playing, I think the four of us could get some real fun out of playing this on Board Game Arena. Maybe then we'll move on to the next one again. Still unsure which is my favorite of the two between Marco Polo and Marco Polo 2, just because they have different different positives and different negatives to them. But I really like this game a lot. I also think that as much as I was trying to convince you guys that the theme was cool, which I I do think it's an interesting story there, the production is not particularly interesting. You know, Dennis Lauhausen art, very reminiscent of Clemens Franz art, very typical Eurofare, nothing exciting, nothing unique here. So don't blame me at all. But I think it's a pretty fun game. It's a game I'll go back to. Like it didn't make my top 40 list this year, even though I played it a lot. Will it eventually? Maybe, but it doesn't do that much different than other Euro games. Although I, I do think it's got a lot of value in discovery for simple mechanisms. So I don't know. We'll see. Maybe this is this is one that will continue to grow for me, or maybe eventually it'll be forgettable. I would not be surprised if it went either direction and just dropped off our playlist and we don't play it again. Let me do an addendum to my final thoughts there, because as you were talking, I was doing a little bit more processing. And I was thinking about the fact that we played two games of this tonight. And when I did, it kind of made a little bit more sense to me that I felt less attracted to this game at the end of the second than I was at the end of the first. Maybe this is just a game because of the punishing nature of the economy and the movement and the things that were concerning to me. Maybe it's just a game that for me doesn't need to be played twice in a row in the same night because I felt pretty good about the first game. I was really kind of enthusiastic about it. And then by the second game, I'm like, ugh, I'm so tired of trying to do this thing. Maybe that was just because it was two games. Maybe if I played it once, you know, every few weeks or an async game where there was, you know, it felt like a little bit more leisurely, maybe I feel differently about it. So I'm I'm trying to remediate this a little bit in my mind because I can see the attraction and I can see the things you're saying about it. So maybe that was a part of it. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that, Chris. So give it a couple more tries. We'll see where it goes. Let's jump into some games that have been on our table right after this. Welcome back. What have you guys been playing this week? I am going to talk about a game called Trellis. This has a rating of 6.1 on board game geek and usually that means it's relegated to the basement of never try it never even look at it never do anything but sarah found this one took a look at it and decided it might be worth a play or two maybe we could play with our kids so the rules are super simple but we had trouble learning it from the rule book so that's my first 
complaint about this one. We we tried the rule book. We we couldn't do it. Like neither one of us were both relatively intelligent adults. At least I like to think so. And we couldn't gather what to do from the rule book. But what you're trying to do in this game is you're just placing tiles and you're just connecting. In this case, it's vines, basically routes. And it's very abstract. There's six different color of vines. Every player is a different color of flowers. So, right, you have 15 flowers and you're just connecting vines. If you connect a vine, you put a flower on it. If you already have a flower on a vine, you get to put a free flower on the vine that you connect and you get to pick a new vine to put a flower on. So your flowers are expanding over this network of vines. And each of these hex tiles has different little routes. It's vaguely similar to Suro, Suru. Suro, yeah. It's kind of like that, the way you're connecting these different routes and how these, you know, maybe it goes directly across the hex or maybe it takes a sharp, I don't know, maybe hex angles, 60 degree turn, or maybe it takes a less turn than that and it just bends from not straight across, but it skips aside and goes to that. So you have all these different combinations of vines moving across this hex tile. You can block your opponent. You're looking for opportunistic plays. And this game plays in about 15 minutes or less. And you just run it back and play it again. So after this initial skeptical, what the heck is going on in this rulebook? I don't understand it. We found some okay videos of some examples of gameplay. And we tried to run through it a few more times. And we finally started getting the hang of it. And this thing ended up being a blast. It's very like I said, it's very abstracty, but also nice and thinky. You have three tiles in your hand. You play one, draw back up to three, so you can think a little bit ahead. It was a shocker of a game to me. I had a great time playing Trellis. You guys ever heard of this? Um, I have not heard. No, I've, I've heard nothing about it. Yeah, I hadn't heard anything about it, Adam. When you said it, I, it didn't occur to me that you meant trellis, like as in a trellis, like vines grow on, but <laughs> yeah. It's it's pretty. Trellis was designed by Teal Fristo with beautiful art by Vicky Chu and published by Breaking Games. What about you, Chris? What have you had on your table? I've had a lot of things on my table. I just haven't been playing any of them. So <laughs> instead of actually talking about games I played, I'm going to talk about games I've punched. So I really am going to get to focus not on those stupid, boring mechanisms and such, but you know the stuff that really matters, like production and theme. Uh, two games that I punched this weekend that I can can comment on the production and theme for. One is Expeditions, which is designed by uh, Jamie Stegmeier, published by Stonemeyer Games. And this is a sequel to Scythe, which is one of the, the greats, in my opinion, in particular because the art is so wonderful in Scythe. We've talked about that a million times, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit more tonight because now that art can be found not only in Scythe, but you can find similarly awesome art in Expeditions. Really, the two big, most impactful pieces of production in this game are the tiles where the art, uh, where you see this art, because unlike Scythe, which has a large central board, in Expeditions, you're playing with hex tiles, but they're giant. I mean, seriously, these are like dinner plate size hex tiles that have really cool visuals on them, really cool Jakob Rosalski art. And they're just a delight to look at. The other thing that really knocked me out in this game. Now, I invested in the Ironclad Edition where you have uh, metal mechs. Each of the players in this game gets a metal mech. You don't get a bunch of them like you do in Scythe, but each player gets one. And much of the game is spent trying to like build up your mech. 
but these mechs are one of the biggest, coolest pieces I've ever seen in a board game. I mean, I sent you guys a picture of it. I was holding one of them in my hand and it was almost the size of the palm of my hand. And this thing was huge. It was like, I barely lift this thing. It was so big and heavy. So exciting, cool looking. I think it's going to be really fun to play with these. And the design is just absolutely wonderful along with the art. So that is Expeditions. Can't say much about the gameplay yet. Haven't played it. Haven't even learned this game yet. I have just punched it. The other game that I punched this weekend was a Kickstarter that I just received at the end of last week, and it is Robot Quest Arena, designed by Paul Waite and published by Wise Wizard Games. This is an absolutely adorable, card-driven, deck-building game that also has a central board with these gigantic, adorable, pre-painted robot minis. It's basically like BattleBots. If you've ever seen the show BattleBots, It's like that, but with these anime-looking robots on this big, (laughs) really cute board. And each player uh, has a character and a robot that has its own special power. And you start, as with many deck builders, you start with a very basic set of cards. You start with some batteries and a hammer that you can use to hit people, and you can push people. And there's little, just like in battle bots, there's these little things around the battlefield, like places where you can push somebody over a place where it's going to pop their tires or something like that. So these cute little things you can do and you play these cards and you try to build up your deck by adding things from the shop and uh, getting rid of, you know, scrapping your base cards so that your deck gets stronger and you're drawing those cards, uh, the good cards more quickly. I can't say a whole lot about the gameplay yet because I've just started learning this game, but mostly I just wanted to comment on the production It is such a cool looking game because it has these gigantic minis. This is like the the episode where I'm just going to talk about gigantic minis, whether they're metal or they're these big (laughs) plastic pre-painted things. So much fun to look at. Is that every episode, Chris? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, my son was looking at it. He wanted to come over and play it with me, even though he didn't actually want to play with me. He just wanted to play with the, the minis and look at them and pick out which ones looked coolest. So... Uh, Maybe I'll say more about both of these games when I've actually had a chance to play them, or I think maybe we'll even do an episode talking about Expeditions, I hope, in the near future, if we can actually get this game played on, say, Tabletopia or wherever it it ends up landing for online play. Yeah, Chris, I actually punched Expeditions this week, too, and it looks amazing so i'm hoping to get it played soon so if, if we don't feature it we'll we'll probably do it on the table about it soon i did want to call out one thing that's a pet peeve that you mentioned chris and you said that you invested in the metal max and i think using the term invested and related to board games is a problem i think these are terrible investments no matter what game you get um so just a little pet peeve of mine I, I think you're taking the term investment a little too <laughs> literally. I, it was an investment in my happiness. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, well, the game I've had on my table this week was actually my number one game I want to play this year when we did our uh, you know, our episode on that several months back. Every year, right at the beginning of the year, we do an episode, our top five games we want to play for the year. And I finally get to play Steffenfeld's Marrakesh, which was the Feld game I was really excited about. And it hit all my expectations. This game was so much fun. Such a blast. So right out of the gate, I'm telling you, if you get a chance to play this, get it played. I loved it. A little bit about it. I'm not going to try to go into too much detail because there's a decent amount going on in this game. But I think I can describe 
the core of the fund here pretty quickly. Every player has a big, busy player board. And there's basically, I think, eight regions on the board. Yeah, eight regions on the board. And what happens every round is that the round is going to be played over four turns. And in the first turn, you're going to have 12 different colored little cylinders you're starting with. Every player is going to pick three of those colors and they're going to put them in a cube tower. So everyone's going to be putting three different colors in a cube tower, although some of the colors may be the same as other players, but each of you only has one of each. Based on the three colors you picked, you're going to put three action markers into some of these regions on the board that match with those colors, which means that those are the only actions you can activate this round. After all these cubes go into the cube tower, then players draft them. The little cylinders are all going to be put into the little sections, and you're going to draft one color at a time with a max of two cylinders. So let's say that two players put the same color cylinder the, into the cube tower, one of the players might get both of those and the other player might not get to activate that action at all. But really what these cylinders are doing is if you draft them, you're gonna put them back on your player board and you're gonna set them in a region and basically make that action more powerful. So once you've drafted cylinders, then you can take the action. When it comes to your turn, you take all three actions, you remove the action marker off the board, you activate all three cylinders and you get the benefit of that region. And there's basically, uh, I think, nine different types of actions you're taking there. Three of the color cylinders all inter interact with one particular region. And then one of the cylinders is a wild that will benefit other regions. But for some reason, this all just works together so well. There's a few resources you're managing and some of the regions will, for example, let you get um, technology that you can build with. Some of them will get you resources, but then you need those resources for other regions. And all of this stuff so, so all plays together so well. It was really fun. The, the feld that this reminded me of the most was Trajan. And that Trajan had this interesting action selection mechanism. It was a little different. It was a rondelle that you're pulling uh, these cylinders from. But it kind of had six mini games on the board. And the reason why Trajan didn't work for me is those mini games were mostly disconnected. If you took an action and it it was relevant to one of these regions, that's great, you did that little thing, and then the next player did something in another region. In this game, all the regions had very important interactions between them. Like one of them, the only thing you would do there is you get dates equal to the number of cylinders you had in that region. But then there are other regions that needed dates in order for you to, to pay the actions. And there was this boat track, and if you collected water in one region, you could spend water when you did the boat action to get more movement on this boat track. Everything worked together so well. It was a fun draft. It was exciting to see what some of those cylinders wouldn't even come out of the dice cube until the next round or maybe never at all. And so you never knew whether you could get the actions you were hoping for. But even if you didn't, maybe someone else dropped the cube down there and you got to take their actions that they weren't expecting. Um, yeah, game was just great progression, great engine building. The turns got more and more exciting as we went through the game. It was so fun. What do you guys think? Are you looking at pictures of this? Does this look fun to you? Tim, I'm... Looking at this production looks amazing. It's something I was not expecting from a, a Feld game unless it's redone by Awaken Realm. <laughs> yeah. No, this one actually is quite, this is one of the new queen stuff in Feld games. And they're okay. doing, they're adding some color for sure. This, this is the first of his unique designs that was done in this Queen City collection. Most of them have been like re-implementations. Uh -huh. And yeah, I think they did a pretty good treatment of the this game. Like pretty decent production here. Where you're slotting all these 
looks like octagonal cylinders. Is is that a player board? Is yeah. every player has one of these things in front of them? It is. Yeah, every player has one of these big dual layer player boards with all kinds of little spaces to slot these little cylinders. And if you look at that picture, like you know, like each of those, you can see they're kind of separated by color. So the white color in the middle, basically the number of cylinders is how strong that action is when you take it. So if you get a bunch of those cylinders earlier and then take the action later, but you can't do everything in this game. So you're going to end up like really focusing on a few specific actions with a couple here and there and other places. And then there's also like a bonus where if you fill in all of the cylinders in one region, you're going to get 10 extra points at the end of the game. So you're kind of focused to, to do that. But some of the actions were super fun, like the pink action in the bottom right corner of the the board was supposed to represent the entertainment that you're you're drawing people into in the city and what would happen is you'd put a token down you immediately get a bonus on that underneath what that token was covered but then when you took the action you take this little um, disc in the middle of it and you'd move it one location and based on the number of people on that side of the disc that's the number of actions you'd get at the space you chose so each of these like i said kind of little mini games um there was this river track where you could go a certain number of space on a river track. And at the end of a round uh, or at the end of every turn, actually, you get bonuses that you passed on the track. But at the end of the round, you get extra uh, points if you were beating other people on the track. A little boat race. <laughs> so lots of fun little things that were happening all over the place. One of them, again, just let you buy technology tiles that gave you all kinds of game breaking abilities and a huge variety in these technologies so that every time you play it, you're going to find different things to try to work with and make your other actions more powerful. So not just the player boards look amazing, but the central board, it has like a bunch of nodes, a little network of little yeah. stuff going on that looks intricate and cool. Uh, intricate is the word I want to use yeah. to describe this game. It looks beautiful. These little bridges with the ridges on top or the arches with a, you know, talk about a game with some art that's representative non-generic this game has it in space this looks beautiful yeah no this is the original like so there was a kickstarter of this game and then what you're looking at is kind of the the, the main game the original production um but it's it's fairly expensive it's like a 90 dollar game and you can't i think you can buy it on online retailers or maybe some game stores have it still so you can buy it now but they did a kickstarter a follow-on kickstarter and i think they called it marrakesh essential edition and essential edition basically slims it down into a tiny, cheaper package. And I looked at the, the player boards for this, and what they did is they basically made the player boards a tiny, like maybe you know, two-thirds of the size of the original, and tightened it down so a lot of the sections, instead of putting 10 tokens in it or 10 like cylinders, instead you've got a little track that represents you just move one cylinder up the track, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, the game can do that. So they, they were able to distill it down maybe less of an exciting production, but still pretty colorful and, you know, smaller size on some of the things. So apparently a more, uh, you know, price-wise approachable game than the original base game. And I think either one's going to be fun. Game's going to be fun no matter what production you have. But I really liked that playing off that, the original production with all those dual layer player boards and the huge components. It took up a lot of space. Great game. I'm not sure, like, I want this. I want to play this game a lot, and I think this is a this is a game that would get played. But again, it's one of these games. It's like, man, there's so many heavy euros that I can't get played all the time. So, do I? I've got five or six heavy euros in my collection. Do I need another heavy euro in my collection? I don't know. But this is a great one. If you don't have something to take that space, like it's it's an awesome game. That will wrap up this episode of Board Game Hot Takes. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And you can join us on our Facebook group and chat with us 
follow poll results, etc. We may be joining some other social media channels in the near future. So keep an ear open and we'll try to keep everybody updated on that. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye.